welcome to another episode of the Her Story Speaks podcast, a podcast dedicated to sharing sacred and powerful stories of women who have too often gone unheard, but are most often the ones we need to be listening to. I'm your host, Andrea Miller, and I'm joining you from Kansas City, Missouri, on the native lands of the Ka and Kickapoo Nations. If you want to know whose indigenous lands you are living on, and if you haven't already, please go to the website, native-land.ca. Again, native-land.ca. As I mentioned in the last episode, in this season, season five of the Her Story Speaks podcast, I'm focusing on stories of liberation. So for today's episode, I'm talking about a topic that lots of folks seem to be talking about these days and also a topic that has played a significant role in my own journey of healing and liberation. Research shows that participants in psilocybin studies have repeatedly rated their experience on magic mushrooms as among the most meaningful in their lives. As you will hear in this conversation, my guest and myself would say that is true about our own personal journeys with the sacred plant medicine, psilocybin. My guest for this episode is Jennifer Chesick, author of the Psilocybin Handbook for Women, How Magic Mushrooms, Psychedelic Therapy, and Microdosing Can Benefit Your Mental, Physical, and Spiritual Health. Jen is an award-winning freelance science and medical journalist, editor and fact checker based in Nashville, Tennessee. She earned her Master's of Science degree in journalism from Northwestern University, and her work has appeared in the Washington Post, Healthline, Better Homes and Gardens, and many more places. Her most recent book, all about psilocybin is a topic of our conversation. In this episode, she shares some of the events that led her to psilocybin, what made her write this book, and specifically why she wrote a book for women on the power of psilocybin. Jen and I also both share our personal healing experiences with psilocybin. With that said, please note this conversation and our personal experiences are not medical advice and should not be taken as so. Please do your own research, consult with your own doctor, and make your own decisions about what is best for your body and your healing journey. With that said, let's listen in on our conversation. All right. Well, Jen, welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast. We're just going to dive into our conversation. Thank you for having me. Well, I am, like I just shared in our little pre-conversation, I'm so Thrilled to have you here. And this is a little bit of a different conversation than um, I have in the past, because primarily I I do bring women, a lot of women's from, voices from the margins in, and we talk about just, so today we're bringing a little bit different flavor, because we're going to talk about a little bit of your story, a little bit of my story, and psychedelics for women, because that is the title of your book, The Psilocybin Handbook for Women, How Magic Mushrooms, Psychedelic Therapy, and Microdosing Can Benefit your mental, physical, and spiritual health. And I'm so grateful for your book as someone who really, I don't think it's a stretch to say that psilocybin has been life-changing for my life. And I've seen it with a, a handful of friends and I know the stories I've dove into this research for the last couple of years, but it's not a subject I've openly talked about Instagram on this podcast. Only a few of my circle know about it. So I really feel like your book that just came out in June, um, is that right? In June? Yes. June. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I really felt like it opened a door, bringing it into this mainstream, like, Oh, now I can actually maybe start sharing more about my story. And there's other women that maybe don't talk about all the time, but it's part of their story too. So thank you for your work, your book, your words, and how you share your story and just the enormous amount of research you poured into this book. Thank you so much. That means a lot to me. And one of the goals with the book really is to uh, help reduce stigma associated with plant medicines, you know, especially mm-hmm. psilocybin and cannabis and things like that, because I think stigma does such a such a big harm to the community at large, uh, especially to m- marginalized people. And, you know, I'm not at at as much risk as someone who is more marginalized for speaking out about my usage. You know, obviously there's risks for other people. There's risks for parents. There's risks for people of color to talk about this openly. So my, one of my goals is to really try to get the word out there and, uh, you know, be open about my usage so that it does help, you know, reduce stigma in whatever form or fashion that is. Yeah. And I appreciate that so much. And you're super honest about that in your book, just even with cannabis use and 
all the black men that are still incarcerated and the white men that are opening up all the cannabis shops and benefiting like there this is like there's so much stigma involved but yet there's still so much inequality on the legal use of things yes. so assignment coming to the forefront it's like how can we approach this without continuing and perpetuating that same harm and i think talking about it and having these conversations is for sure one of the ways Absolutely. There's a whitewashing in the cannabis industry, and it's certainly going to be happening in the psychedelic industry. We're already seeing it. And I think that's really problematic. So thank you for bringing that up. Okay. I'm trying to focus because I could go off on it. I know. know. So I'm reeling myself back in of like, we have an hour to talk and all the things we want to talk about, because one of the things I do want to share, like I said, I've kind of been looking for a space to share about my own journey and it's life-changing experience um, with psilocybin. And I want both of us to be able to share a little bit about that. First of all, tell me, where are you in the world? A little bit about your day-to-day. And then I want to talk about like why this book, why women, all the things. Absolutely. Yeah. My day-to-day is a little crazy right now because I'm <laughs> promoting the book right now. But um, but yeah, like psilocybin has really, you know, changed my life, as you mentioned. And so, you know, I'm not using necessarily on a regular basis. I did a journey last uh, summer in, in preparation for writing the book, I really wanted an experience that I could accurately write about psilocybin. And, uh, it was just one of the most profound experiences of my life. And then in terms of ongoing use, I'm more so doing a little bit of microdosing and using my intuition as to when I feel like I need it, but I'm still, what, what's really magical about magic mushrooms is that my journey from last summer is still uh, beneficial to me in that I'm still learning things. It's a constant learning process of, of gleaning information from the insights that I learned during my journey, but it's an ongoing process where things still come up, which is really cool in my opinion. Right. Right. So let's put a pin in a little, in your journey. Cause I do want to mm-hmm. talk, go back to that. And I also, yeah. um, I'm just a little bit about mine. Like I've had, had two journeys and I also have been microdosing for the last year. Um, but before we dive too much into that, I really want to start and just give honor and respect to the indigenous roots of psilocybin. Cause here we are two white women talking about our use openly. Also two white women born and raised during like the dare and your brain on drugs. And so all that stigma, but yet here we are talking about it, but it's really important to note that before Westerners, you say in your book, before Westerners even knew about magic mushrooms, indigenous people have been using has been using psilocybin for thousands of years. So I really would like to give just honor and respect if you would share a little bit of the story of Maria Sabina um, and yeah. just the problematic roots of how it got to the United States, but just a little bit of her story. And I know it'll just be a little, real brief overview. I'm, I'm going to put some more notes in the show notes to give her a little bit more honor and respect. But if you don't mind starting us off by just sharing her story. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for bringing that up because it is so important to honor indigenous wisdom when we talk about psilocybin. Uh, so Maria Sabina, is what she's, she was a healer in Mexico and she, I, I don't know if healer is the exact right word, but it's just the word I have right now. But anyway, she uh, was using psilocybin in very cere- ceremonial and traditional indigenous wisdom context. And so this man, this white man came down and to her village and he sort of positioned himself as an amateur mycologist and I believe his wife was actually the more the more knowledgeable mycologist in the family which is weird because we don't really hear about her um, however he went down to her villa to Maria Sabina's village and um, you know the white man really wasn't supposed to partake in any sort of ceremonies and so he lied to her trying to convince her to allow him to participate he made up a story made up a lie and she uh, willingly I mean allowed eventually allowed him to participate in a ceremony. And, um, and by the way, he was a, he worked for JP Morgan and Chase. So he was in the banking industry, even though he was an amateur mycologist. And um, so her contingency on like allowing him to participate was please don't share my location or who I am 
if you go when you go back to the states and start talking about your experience like kind of keep it on the down low and he really violated that uh that contract with her that unwritten contract because he immediately went back and wrote this article for i believe it was time magazine he named her and he named the village and uh then all of these people um started coming to also partake in ceremony when they really shouldn't have been doing that so tourists were flocking to this village and it really put maria Sabina in a tough spot because uh, the village was upset that all these tourists were coming in and sort of um, co-opting their culture and it was really problematic and her house got burned down and I believe her son was murdered and I don't know the full story about all of that but um, but it really shows that we that the, that white people really caused a lot of harm to this woman who was you know very deep in healing and things like that. And so we that's the only reason that we really know about psilocybin in um, the United States is because of this violation of trust of this white man that he violated this woman in Mexico. He violated her trust and her consent. So it's a problematic origin story for how it became available in the United States. Yeah. And that was 1955 that he went down there. So we're not talking like we're talking in pretty yeah. not that long ago that he went down there and this happened and how capitalism, colonization, all of that is still playing out in in this story. And like you said, it's really a tragic, awful story of how it got here. However, going forward in this quote psychedelic renaissance, Right. So it's a story we need to remember as we pave this path to do no harm and really honor the indigenous roots. And we'll talk about that as we get a little bit more into women's usage of psychedelics and the indigenous roots and nature that you you bring into that in your book. Yeah, so, I wanted to also, sorry, I wanted to also no, just mention yeah. that um, that with indigenous wisdom, uh, there was there was a woman who I interviewed for the book. Her name is Natalie Villanova. She's a, a licensed clinical therapist. And she she talked to me a little bit about this idea of a two-eyed seeing concept, which seems so important as we move forward with new psychedelic research. So this two-eyed seeing concept was brought to light by a, a Mi'kmaq elder named Albert Marshall of the Eskasoni First Nation. And his he brought this concept to mainstream science, saying that when we are dealing with mainstream science, we also need to bring in indigenous wisdom and we need to merge the two and we need to look at, uh, you know, anything we're doing scientifically, we need to look at indigenous wisdom as well and keep these two things in balance. And I think that is so important because even though we think of science as doing something over and over to reproduce the same results in a very clinical perspective, that is exactly what uh, indigenous wisdom or indigenous cultures have been doing for thousands and thousands of years is doing something over and over again to reproduce the same results, especially with something like psilocybin. So we do have this really, you know, large amount of information that we can draw on while we're also doing this new research and have a more, I think that's beneficial to everyone when we do that. So I just wanted to share that. Sorry to interrupt you. No, I agree. I actually have that in my notes. If you didn't bring it okay. up, I was going to have you, have you talk about that because <laughs> got think it. that's so, so important. And if we, when we have time, hopefully to dive in a, a few of the specifics, like women's cycles and pregnancy, yeah, like we can do that here again, how, how that um, exactly relates to what you just said. So you're a medical writer, journalist, tell me why, why psilocybin? And then why you decided to write this book? Had you had your own journey, your own experience? Because part of the yeah. story also is, and I'm, I'm talking a lot here, but my okay. listeners, I think the podcast differs a little from a lot of podcasts you've been on that it's the focus is psilocybin or mushrooms or psychedelics. That's not my, I've not talked about it at sure, all. On my podcast. I get it. So my listeners could be coming from, I don't know what they're talking about to, oh yeah, I've taken my own journey. Um, so it is important to know psilocybin is still considered a schedule one drug. The Nixon administration, the it was very political. Like we're not, we don't have time to get into all that. But making right. them illegal was a very politicized move. So a lot of research was being done, and then a lot abruptly stopped because of politics. And um, so now we're we're re-entering that. It's getting more on the forefront. So I just want to know why you decided to write write the book, and then specifically why for women. I know the right. answer. 
tell my listeners. <laughs> <laughs> so actually, it's really it's a weird origin story for a book. But the uh, publisher had the idea, the concept of writing a book about psilocybin for women, and um, and then I just turned out to be the right person for the job with my background as somebody who's written about psychedelics in the news. As we have this new research coming out, but also I have this huge background in science and science and medical journalism, and I have a big focus on women's health because that's so important to me. And so it seemed like a good fit to merge these two areas. And uh, and I'm really glad that we did this. So that I'm so glad that my publisher had this idea because it, it just really resonated with me so much. If we look back on the state of women's health as it is right now, it's not great. You know, um, we, you know, just to put this into context, uh, so more women are actually using some psychedelics more frequently than men are, which came as a little bit of a surprise to me when I started to dive into the research. But then when I dug in a little bit more, I learned that uh, women tend to use psychedelics um, to self-treat rather than recreationally as men tend to use psychedelics. And that's not to say that that's the truth for all men or all women. And I also don't want to just be talking in non-binary, I mean, in a in a binary context of, of, um, of gender or anything like that. But that's just what a, what a survey results had shown me. And that didn't come as a surprise to find out that that women are using uh, psychedelics to self-treat. And the reason that I am not surprised about that is because the mainstream medical community often leaves women's health behind or they just they just discount it. And, you know, this is this is crazy because it's like there are more women are disproportionately affected by PTSD, trauma, other mental health conditions. And we're also disproportionately affected by chronic, chronic, chronic pain when we're, when we compare to, to the male body. And, you know, this is, this is so problematic because we also get really gaslit in the, in the doctor's office. We're disproportionately affected by medical gaslighting if we're looking at gender and, and that's really problematic, but women are just like sort of fed up at this point and they are turning to alternative methods for treatment. And, you know, I never like to say, oh, the mainstream medical community leaves women behind without providing some facts about that, because I'm a fact checker, too. So um, so this, this is sort of an alarming thing. But women were largely excluded from early stage clinical trials until around the 1990s. And so that wasn't that long ago, if you think about it. And if you look at what ramifications that has had, there can be these huge gaps from when men get a solution to a condition to when women get one. And here's an example of that. So men had a drug for male sexual dysfunction in 1998. And everyone knows what that is. It's Viagra, right? We didn't have that. We didn't have a drug for that. And at that point in time, we didn't even have a complete picture of what the clitoris looks like because there's all this internal structure to the clitoris. And so that didn't happen until 2005, if you can believe That's that. When, I know. A female urologist dug in and did some research and learned that it has all this internal structure. And so finally, we figure out where the clitoris is, right? In 2005, that's you know many years after men have had a drug for male sexual dysfunction out there. Then women don't get a drug for female sexual dysfunction until 2015. So 17 year gap from when men had a drug for a condition that also that actually disproportionately affects women. So women are 40, if you're in your reproductive age, you're 40 to 45% uh, likely to have um, female sexual dysfunction. But once you get into perimenopause and menopause, that goes up dramatically to about 85% of women have female sexual dysfunction by the time they reach menopause. And so it's, it's alarming that there was a 17 year gap. And so that's, I just wanted to use that information to back up my claim. I'm so glad you did. I was, again, going to ask you if you didn't. That's so important of why we need this book. And again, you're not trying to like create binaries and that, but it is crucial no. that we understand that. Humans born in female bodies with female genitalia, we have this extra research. And I will say that this last year, I've been pouring myself into learning as much as I can to one day lead lead women on their own plant medicine journeys. And so much of what you taught in this book, I'm like, I've been all the, in all these trainings and I didn't even know I should pay attention to my menstrual cycle with, but we'll talk about that. So I'm like, yeah, of it course. Is so, it is so crucial to have this information that pertains differently to women. And of course our bodies and hormones are different. And I know your own story with battling endometriosis, endometriosis that you share in the book is another example of just being gaslit and dealing with it. 
Absolutely. Yeah. So um, one in 10 people assigned female at birth have endometriosis. So this is a condition that affects 10% of women. Occasionally it can affect the male body, but that's much rarer. And um, what's alarming is the National Institutes of Health designated less than 0.1% of funding to um, endometriosis research in 2022. We don't have the 2023 stats yet. I'm certainly eager to get those. But uh, that's alarming to me that so many women have this condition that dramatically affects their lives. It affects, it, it, it has affected every facet of my life. It's affected my, my career, my relationships, um, you know, really everything, my quality of life. And yet it is not, you know, there's just barely any research. There's no cure. It takes on average one, uh, about 10 years for a woman to get a diagnosis of endometriosis when it occurs. And uh, it's just been a really frustrating experience to live with that chronic pain and realize that doctors just really don't care. Yeah. Yeah. And did you, well, okay. We might come back to that when we get specifically mm -hmm. into um, some of the female issues and how psychedelics affect those differently. So Let's circle back around. I want to start off just a little bit about like our own journeys and personal experiences. So had you taken your journey before the book during, like, tell me the time frame on that. During. So it was, I got the book deal in June of 2022. And then I did my, it was late June. So it was practically July. I did my journey in August and, um, you know, uh, that was just such a, an impactful experience for being able to write the book because I couldn't have accurately written about psilocybin without having that experience of understanding. Um, you know, I did, I dug into the research of what goes on in your brain during a psilocybin journey, but to actually experience it is a whole other story so that you can accurately tie it into your own experience. So that was really important. For sure. Like, I'm not sure if you could have adequately, adequately no. written the book without your own journey. So did you go into that journey with like this? Is, and one of the quotes, I think you quoted somebody else, but you say you don't get in, you don't get the trip you want, you get the trip you need. And now having myself taken two trips that were completely different, I completely see that. Um, yes. So did you go into your trip, just share what you want to about it. Like you share in detail in your book about it, which um, had me in tears because it resonated so much with my first journey, which I took a year and a half ago. Um a very, very large heroic dose. Um, and it was a really intense, hard journey. A lot of it was dealing with the grief with my dad, um, who had passed a, a year and a half prior to that journey, um, did not even go into it with that intention. Like intention is important, but it was not the journey that I expected, but it was like yeah. one of the top most healing times, days of my life. Um, so you, your story, what you share resonated with me with that first journey. Just what, what do you want to share? What do you feel is important just to share for the purpose of this conversation with your first, with your, with your journey? Yeah, of course. I'm happy to share. So I did two days of a journey. It was a weekend retreat essentially. And it was solo. I was with a guide and a trip sitter, but um, I didn't have other participants with me. So the first evening I did about a two gram dose. And then the second day we started in the, during the daytime and I did uh, about a 3.5 gram dose. So a macro dose, not quite a heroic dose, but, um, but definitely a macro dose. And uh, I had really profound experiences both days. So the first night was in that more traditional context of like lying down with an eye mask over your face and um, listening to a, a sound bath with Tibetan singing bowls. And it, it started out as just a really nice meditation, but I certainly went much deeper. And uh, one of the most profound things that I felt during that was this connection to, it was almost like threads of light connecting me to everyone that I know and love and who I know loves me back. And they were really, it was like they were holding me up in this really uh, new experience for me. And, you know, I think that's important because when we, we often think we have a support system or we know we do, but to actually feel it is so profound. And it was a physical feeling of knowing my support system. So that was amazing. I was also dealing with some grief um, over the loss of um, my dog in recent year, in re the year before my dog had passed away and he was my soulmate. And so I was able to really kind of work through some of the grief and trauma from that loss. And I had also, so then the next day when I did um, a, a deeper dose, uh, I was also dealing, I, I faced some other grief issues that I was having surrounding um, 
two friends that I had lost recently to to death. And um, so that was really helpful as well. But I think one of the more profound elements of the experience that I had that second day was facing this anxiety that I have around my parents eventual deaths, right? So I think this is something that we all go through, usually around middle age. Sometimes it happens earlier, sometimes it happens later for people. And as you you just talked about your own deep loss, but um, this is something that weighs heavily on my mind is that I will lose my parents someday. And um, I it's always just felt like it's going to be this, on the other side of their, their deaths, it will be this unending wall of grief that I will live with for the rest of my life. And it's going to be super painful. I won't ever be happy again. That's this like weird feeling that I had about it. And um, the, my my journey that day forced me to look at that and question, why do I feel this way? That's not true. You know, yes, when you lose your parents, there will be grief and it will be difficult, but uh, I will get through it. I'm a strong, strong person. I've gotten through very difficult things before. And um, so anxiety really cropped up for me during that part of the session. But on the other side of it, it was just kind of like about a 10 minute section where I was like, oh, I don't want to be doing this anymore. Unsubscribe from this experience because of the anxiety anxiety. But um, on the other side of that, like 10, 15 minutes or so where I was feeling such intense fear and anxiety was this total release, this total euphoria, this total peace in knowing I will eventually be okay. Yes, it will be hard, but I have this beautiful support system to lean on when things get difficult and I will be able to get through something that is so challenging. Um, So essentially what I like to say in a nutshell is that psilocybin teaches you the tools that you have within yourself, which is amazing. Yeah, it's a hundred percent accurate. And I don't share a ton of my first journey because it's like, it is a deeply personal experience. And that one for me was very emotional, but just so many of the similar elements of like that connectedness or like knowing you can get through this or, um, you know, for me, I did encounter my dad. It's still like you mentioned earlier, it's not like you do it and you're done. It is a touch point to keep going back to, and we're not going to have time to get into it, but setting and set and who's mm-hmm. guiding your journey and integration. Those are all things that are super, super important. Yeah. And a lot of other podcasts go, I wish, I wish I could just talk about that every part. <laughs> every podcast that so we don't have time for that, right. but it's just, those are super important elements that really do affect your journey. And it sounds like yours was just a really well done, safe container with two guides that were just so safe for you. And I just they were. can't stress enough to people. And we'll end on that. And I'll put some resources, like just how important that is um, to have such a super safe container, because this field is just ripe with abuse and more trauma happening in it. Um, yes, you're correct later. So as okay. we share our stories, I don't want to do it lightly, like just do it. And it was great and life-changing because there's so much no. more than that involved, involved with it. So can you share, and like I said, my listeners can be all over the place, but in your chapters do a really, that's why everybody just needs to buy your book. Cause we're just giving you <laughs> a little bitty taste of it. And I, again, can't tell you how much I appreciate because the number of articles and things I read and I try to send people, but I'm like, now I can just tell people read this book instead of like me sending a list of 50 references that to get the same <laughs> information. So for people that are hearing this and like, oh, what is that like doing to their brain? They're not well read. Can you just kind of in a nutshell, talk about this, the science part of what psilocybin is actually doing to our brain? Because first of all, it's very safe. Like, again, this is not medical advice. This is not me telling you go run out and do it. But it's like the one of the least toxic drugs, psychedelics that you can put in your body. It has a very kind of right. a low out of your system fairly quickly. The fact that it's a schedule one drug is absurd, but that's kind yes, of that's absurd. <laughs> the point. So in a nutshell, what, what was it doing? What was happening with our brains on drugs while we were both in yeah. our brains? Such a great question. I, I do have a whole chapter on the science if anyone wants to go deep, but I think um, I think that in a nutshell, I can describe it in a, in a really cool way with an analogy that um, it, it, I can't take credit for it. It's the re- some researchers, uh, Dr. Robin Carhart-Harris and Dr. Carl J. Friston came up with this uh, analogy and concept, but they, they describe it as the Rebus model, R-E-B-U-S, and it stands for relaxed beliefs under psychedelics. And what this means is, so we have to think back to um, being children. So when we are kids, our brains aren't um, super 
super rigid yet. We're still formulating, they're very flexible. We're still formulating our ideas about ourselves. Like we're building our identity and we're, we, we're still learning how the world around us operates and we haven't formed those thoughts fully yet. So our brains are super flexible. When we get into adulthood, our brains become much more rigid about these things. We have solidified our, our, our identities, including those negative beliefs about ourselves. And we've solidified beliefs about how the world around us operates, often sometimes er erroneous beliefs about that. It just happens. It's not anyone's fault. It can come up because of trauma uh, and things like that. But so in normal states of consciousness, our brains are extremely rigid in adulthood. And so we can think of, they came up with this really great analogy. We can think of our brain in normal states of consciousness as like a frozen pond, right? So now if you were to try to take a new belief, let's say you're trying to change a negative belief about yourself, um, maybe you feel like uh, people don't like you in social situations, so you have social anxiety. And so you're trying to take a new belief and get that into your brain. So in a normal state of consciousness, it's very hard to do because we think of that belief as like a rock and now you're gonna drop it on that frozen pond. It doesn't do anything, right? It doesn't gain entry. But if we are on a psychedelic, then our brains almost become thawed or they become really flexible. So we can think of it as like a pond that's just water now. Now you take that new belief and you try to drop it into the pond and it gains entry. And so going back to relating this to my own experience, um, you know, I was struggling with trying to tell myself things are going to be okay, even in the most difficult thing that you might face in your life, losing your parents, you know, or could um, you're going, you know, I had trouble trying to convince myself I was going to be okay in a normal state of consciousness. I just could do it. On psilocybin, I could that that belief gained entry into my brain, and you know, really just working on the tools I have within myself. Again, that's all psilocybin is doing is teaching you the tools that you have within yourself. But that belief was able to gain entry and stay there. And so I, you know, I returned to my normal life, and now I go about my day, and I'm dealing with health issues that my parents have, and helping to manage their health. But I'm not as stressed or anxious about these things. I can think about it very calmly and reason with myself out of that anxiety. So that's in a nutshell how it all works. Yes, and that is a, a very much of a, a nutshell. So go read the chapter, and there's a ton more research backing up exactly what you said, and. You know, as you're talking again, bringing up the integration part, that's why that's important. And that's kind of that after, after the ceremony yes. of like talking and integrating what your experience was. And just with my own, like, I see all that so much in my own daughter and she did come on my podcast. So I feel free to share her story, um, but she did not do psilocybin. Well, she has done psilocybin, but I think that, um, she did ketamine and that is what she is bipolar ketamine a year ago and nothing was as transformative for her in healing what she has been through as that, because, and that's what her therapist said, like, now we can like, finally just like talk about your trauma, like without you being pushing it aside and getting scared of it. And so it's like, that's the after effect of it, of like, you have the space that you can, you can sit with that pain and feel it. And the neuroplasticity, like all the things. So it's so, so deep and so profound um, than just that one yeah. that day experience. You know, another really quick um, analogy for explaining psilocybin or other psychedelics as well is this, uh, this concept of the helioscope effect. So this was something that was um, mentioned to me by a researcher. Her name is Abigail Calder and her coworker, I think his name is Gregor Hassler. Um, he, he came up with this concept, but um, so when we are on a psychedelic, we can view, we can look at trauma in a safe way where we don't have all these triggers or fear or anxiety crop up. It can crop up a little bit, but you don't have that same trigger that you would have in a normal state of consciousness. And he describes this as the helioscope effect. A helioscope is an instrument that we use to look at the sun because we're not supposed to look directly at the sun. Pro tip there. But when you use a helioscope, you can safely look at it and you can view it from a safe distance. And you also get a new perspective because the helioscope has different filters. So we think about that when we view trauma under when we're on a psychedelic, we're able to view it from a safe distance in a safe way because um, essentially psilocybin becomes this helioscope and it gives us a different perspective because, again, we're looking at trauma from new filters and without that 
with, with the absence of these triggers that bring up all that fear. So there's like this something also called fear extinction when you're on psilocybin. And that's simply that we don't have those triggers associated with our trauma. So we're able to reprocess, the, re reprocess them essentially. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating. Like I could just hear you. I could just listen and continue to <laughs> hear you keep talking <laughs> yeah. about it. And can you speak a little bit into the other, I mean, there's so many fascinating aspects, um, but the serotonin, how it mimics the serotonin oh. is like, for me, I was, I'm no longer on Zoloft. And again, I'm not, I don't want to like diminish the people. Some people need like SSRIs. I'm not saying are bad or awful for me personally. Sure. I was on them 20 years and I wanted to go off them because they do have a, I mean, that's a known fact. They have a blunting effect mm -hmm. on your moods, your feelings for me, my sex drive, all of that. So psilocybin, two journeys and microdosing have helped me completely get off 20 years of Zoloft. Okay. And it, and it is fascinating how psilocybin mimics like the SSRI. So talk just a little bit about that. Cause I'm not going to do yeah. it. So when, when you use psilocybin, it activates your serotonin receptors. So it's a little different. It's, it's different than using an SSRI. So, or a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, which, which is essentially what most, or what many antidepressants are. So um, when you take a selective an SSRI, that increases serotonin in your body. Um, and that's why it has some of the beneficial effects that it does. But, um, uh, from my understanding, psilocybin doesn't actually increase serotonin. It's just activating your serotonin receptors. So it doesn't have those same side effects that we have when we take an SSRI, such as that mood blunting. So SSRIs, not only do they blunt your lows, but they also blunt your highs, which can be problematic because we want to be able to lean into our joys. When we're on um, psilocybin, and research has shown this, instead of blunting your highs and lows, it actually makes you feel more okay in your highs and lows. The, the research I'm talking about are like survey results from people who've used psilocybin. So that can have a really um, beneficial effect on you. Not, not that blunting, but making you feel more okay with the range of emotions that you have, which is great. So, um, you know, nothing, I have nothing against SSRIs. I think they're really great for people, but you noted a few things that um, they do have side effects, including um, they can cause low libido or difficulty with orgasm and things like that. And so um, when we, when we talk about women's health, again, we just talked about female sexual dysfunction. So why we don't necessarily always want to be exacerbating that with an SSRI if we don't have to. The other thing is to note is that with an SSRI, you are taking it regularly, right? You're taking it every day or you're going to feel like crap. And so then side effects are, you know, more prevalent. And then um, it's also very difficult to get off them. I don't know if you had that experience, but when I was on an SSRI and I tried to uh, wean off of it, it was really difficult for me. And um, I struggled with it for maybe six months. But um, so with the psilocybin, you could have one journey or maybe two, maybe set like six months apart or something like that and really have a lasting beneficial effects, especially for depression. We're seeing research come out about that now where it's a lasting effect. So a lot of people that I talk to, I find that it's not like they're using psilocybin every day. They might be in a microdosing context, but doing a deeper journey, it's not something you're going to do like every, every other day or something like that. Who would have the time for that? Um, it would be more like you might do it once a year, once every six months, maybe even once a quarter, depending on your needs and how you're feeling. Yeah. Yes. And for me personally, I mean, I've been off Zola for a year and I do contribute it to the journeys, but mostly on honestly to microdosing. Um, and that's kind of a whole other show, but microdosing, I think is what the psilocybin, um, many days of the year is what's really helped me get off of the Zoloft. Cause for me, I just wasn't ready. I didn't want to deal with the side effects anymore. So let's dive into some of these specific issues. And again, whole chapter, on it, on how psilocybin works for your bodies, the people that shouldn't, not everybody should take it, um, right. some of the side effects, because it's not, it, there are side effects. So people with heart conditions, like people with bipolar, like there's just, there are people that really need to be cautious with, with using them. Um, and mm -hmm. you address that in your book. And again, this conversation is not medical advice at all. <laughs> no, of <laughs> just course not. Our stories and Jenna sharing data and the science. So like you mentioned, a big one, depression. I mean, that affects women 
more than men. Is that correct? And it, Absolutely. and so, yes. and so that's a huge one. I mean, that's where a lot of research is coming out on psilocybin does help with depression, major depressive episodes. What do you want to speak into in that as far as like maybe how that affects women differently or why that's an important topic for women to, to consider with psilocybin? Yeah. So it definitely um, affects us disproportionately and especially in the menopause years. So, uh, you know, a lot of times depression crops up for the, the first time um, when someone is in menopause. I mean, certainly they may have had a, bouts of depression before that, but menopause can really exacerbate depression symptoms or bring them up in the first place. And so again, a lot of women are going to go to their doctor and the doctor's going to be like, oh, here, we'll put you on this SSRI. And so, um, you know, it may not need to be the first course of action for someone if it's something that if, if, if a psilocybin journey is something that they want to consider or consider microdosing. So I think that the men the context of menopause is really important there. Yeah. And so let's talk about that a little bit more because you know, you do talk about women's cycles, like mm -hmm. the menopause. And, you know, for me personally, I went on SSRIs right after I had a baby because I had a horrible postpartum depression and that's what the doctor gave me and then kept upping it because life stuff kept happening. And I, with my dad, you know, so I felt like my journey with Zoloft was just upping it. And that's kind of the medical model of like, let's just keep medicating the medicating. I've never presented with other alternatives. So women's cycles, you know, endometriosis, menopause, like all of that psilocybin affects us differently because of that. So speak mm -hmm. into a little of that, like even the importance of when to take it in your cycle and just, um, yeah. just a lot of knowledge around that. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we are learning that psilocybin likely affects the menstrual cycle. So um, some researchers, researchers out of Johns Hopkins University, again, wonderful female researchers doing the work. Um, they did a case study on three women who used uh, psychedelics and two of them used psilocybin. And the findings that they, they drew from these, you know, obviously just three case studies, but there are other anecdotal reports out there. But um, what they learned is that um, it's possible that psilocybin would make your menstrual cycle come a little early. So if you're, you know, you, you have your date set up on your calendar when you're going to get your period, it might come earlier after a journey. And then um, it may uh, help re-regulate the menstrual cycle if you've been irregular, which can happen for many reasons. And then same thing with if you've had an absence of a period, so amenorrhea, it might return, you have your period return. So there's potential here, and we need way more research on this, but there is potential that um, psilocybin could be really beneficial for things like pre menstrual dysphoric disorder, which is PMDD for short, and um, and then uh, polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS, and potentially even endometriosis, although endometriosis is not a menstrual cycle condition. It's really important to note, um, but it, it, it does um, often get exacerbated when you're on your cycle. So I think there could be, or you could get irregular on your cycle with endometriosis. And so it was important to bring that one up. But um, I think it's important to understand the mechanisms, because when we learn the mechanisms of about the body, it makes more sense and people understand more. Um, so our menstrual cycle occurs along what's called the hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis. And so it works in a feedback loop. And when one hormone kicks off like estrogen, it tells another hormone what to do and so forth. And that's why we have like our follicular phase and then ovulation and then the luteal phase, then you get your period and you start it all over again, right? Um, and then we also have what's um, the axis that sort of is involved in our stress response. And that's the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. So when we use psilocybin and we're activating those serotonin receptors, that's really occurring along that HPA axis. And so these axes overlap. The HPA axis, the one with our stress response, overlaps with the HPG axis, the one controlling our menstrual cycle. And we already know this. We can think about this just with our normal lives. When you're menstruating, you might be more stressed or um, when you are stressed, it might impact your menstrual menstrual cycle, right? So we know these things overlap and they work in concert. Um, so it's not a stretch to assume that when we are activating those serotonin receptors along the HPA axis that we are impacting the menstrual cycle in some way, but it sounds like in a beneficial way, which is really interesting. And then you mentioned indigenous wisdom, which I really want to bring into this. So there's this wonderful woman out there doing all this amazing work. Her name is uh, Michaela De La Maico, and she goes by Mama De La Maico on Instagram. I highly recommend 
recommend following her. Um, she gave me some insight about the menstrual cycle in terms of when in a cycle would you use psilocybin. And what she suggested is to use, to, if you're planning a journey, like a deeper journey, to do that more closer to ovulation rather than when you get closer to your period. And um, she, she mentioned that this is because like often we, um, well, the energy in our bodies is more, um, is more available to us. And I'm talking about like glucose and all of that. Um, that is more available to us in our ovulation time than rather than we get closer to our menstrual when we actually bleed, because then we become much more depleted of energy. And that's simply, uh, that makes sense from a scientific perspective as well, because um, in the luteal phase, that is when our body is sort of shuttling all that energy to the womb with the potential for a fetus, you know, all of that. So, um, so that is, that's why it might make more sense to use psilocybin closer to ovulation rather than when you're on your period, we're all, we're just really depleted of energy during that time. And we often fast before a journey. So that can be very difficult, um, during, uh, to do that when you're getting your period, not that everyone fasts, but some people do fast for a few hours before a journey, maybe even the day leading up to a journey, that sort of thing. So that's just something to it's keep a in lot, mind. It's a lot on your system, a lot on yeah. your system to go. Many people, myself included, have like nausea. And so, yes, food, you're not in taking a lot of food for your body. And like I said, all the trainings I've gone through this year, I've never once heard that. So it's like, yeah. How again, to bring in that indigenous wisdom and the scientific mm -hmm. wisdom of like how women's bodies differently are different. So I appreciated that so, so You're much. Welcome. Another thing you bring up is sex and how psilocybin mm -hmm. affects women's sex drive, sex lives, all of that. One of the things that you do bring into that chapter, so let's talk about both, is like we alluded to earlier, this space is very ripe for sexual trauma to occur, for women to be taken advantage of sexually. I've already heard stories. I have a friend that it happened mm -hmm. to. So that is the first and foremost, like this whole consent around sex. So we kind of have two different sides of the table when we talk about sex with, yeah. the, with psilocybin. So maybe speak into that a little bit. Yeah, I'll talk about the consent issue and then we can dig into will psilocybin boost your sex life? So, because yes. I think that's really important to talk about too. So, but the consent thing always comes first. So you're correct. There are um, allegations coming out that people have been sexually assaulted and not just working with like underground guys or anything. This is happening with happening with therapists and stuff and where therapists are assaulting clients. And so it's really important to try to vet whoever, whomever you're working with. And I do have some resources for that in the book. But um, the thing I want to bring up is that so when we are. Oh, I, I did want to mention first that um, there's also a really great podcast out there called um, Cover Story power trip. And Dr. Lily K. Ross is one of the um, hosts of that show and she produces it as well. And it dives into this issue of what is happening in the industry. And a lot of people don't want to talk about it, but it is something that we have to talk about, especially since women are disproportionately affected by sexual assault. That's not to say that that is only the case for women. Obviously, men can be sexually assaulted and it's they're likely under reporting the the amount that it's happening but going back to the concept of consent so we have to remember that psychedelics uh, put us in a very vulnerable state i talked about that idea getting into the pond right so imagine being on psilocybin you are suddenly much more susceptible to being told that you should do something or that you want something when you maybe really don't and you're very you're just very vulnerable and more susceptible to um I guess, manipulation, really. And so um, it's important that if you're working with anyone, that they have a, t a conversation with you about consent before you go into a journey. And so um, what that might look like is that someone talks to you about, um, hey, would it be okay if something difficult comes up during your journey that, um, that I hold your hand or I pat you on the shoulder, just offering a little bit of comfort, right? And that conversation needs to be happening when you're sober, not on psilocybin. And um, uh, and you have the right to say no, absolutely no, no touching me whatsoever. That is okay to say. Um, now, if you do feel like you would like someone to hold your hand if you are struggling, it's okay to say yes and consent to that. However, when you are on psilocybin, then um, you uh, that person still, the, the guide or therapist still needs to ask you before they go and hold your hand. Just because you've given consent for it outside of psilocybin doesn't mean you're going to consent to it in that moment. So they should still ask about that in 
that moment and you have the right to say no, even though you agreed to it beforehand. Then the thing to also keep in mind is they can't do anything that you didn't consent to. So it's not like suddenly if you if you did not consent to having any handholding and then they bring it up when you're on psilocybin, um, if they were to try to hold your hand, if they were even to try to bring it up or if they were to go do it, that's a violation of your consent because you already did not consent to that. So um, so that's just something to keep in mind. And I, I dive into that in detail in the book. And there's this whole acronym acronym about consent called FRIES. We don't have time to necessarily get into it, but I, I do recommend people read that chapter. And then in terms of actually like, does psilocybin boost your sex life? So that's a great question. And um, it, and it's an, and it was an interesting one. Um, for information on that, I turned to Dr. Michelle Ross. She is a neuroscientist and she was fantastic to talk to. And she mentioned that um, it may not necessarily be like this aphrodisiac that you, um, you know, use psilocybin and then are like eager to get into the bedroom or anything like that. You may not feel like that at all. But what you may find is that um, it uh, teaches you to be more okay with your body, more comfortable with uh, things. And um, maybe a solo journey might, you might explore your body, you might do some um, pleasuring of yourself, and that could help with, um, sexual dysfunction, perhaps. And uh, if you're having that, or, you know, and it may um, help with your sex life going forward. The other thing that that was that we talked about, too, is that so psilocybin does make you feel more connected to other people. And so you might go and do a solo journey and then have this deeper connection to your partner that you feel even though they maybe didn't do any psilocybin at all, or they could, I don't know, you never know. And but if you go in our feeling that increase connectedness just on your own, that can help with sexual dysfunction. Because there are two things that are really protective against um, female sexual dysfunction. One is a positive body image, and the second is intimate partner communication. So I can see um, psilocybin facilitating both of those things because we already have research coming out how psilocybin can be beneficial in issues like eating disorders where body body perception is much more a much more complicated thing. So we are seeing good results with that. So I do believe psilocybin Psilocybin has the power to give us a better body image, and it also has the power to facilitate that more intimate partner communication, even if your partner never uses psilocybin. So I just, I loved that information. Yeah, it's, it is fascinating. And my mm -hmm. own experience, I don't know about you, but my second journey, I saw all of this happen. Like I said, my journeys were, were very different and I'm glad you brought both of those things up. Cause that's, that, that was my next area to dive into was just about eating disorders and body image. Um, and so I definitely saw psilocybin, its effects on my sex, sex drive and life going forward. But I think the reason was because of the second journey was so healing for my own eating disorder and body image. So I'm 48, I've battled an eating disorder 30 years of my life some parts of my life really, really severe, like almost dying from it. And you have a whole chapter. You give a lot of space to eating disorders. Um, oh, I'm going to get emotional here, Jen. I'm trying to like focus. I understand. Me too. For me, that second journey was so powerful with healing of eating disorder and body image issues. Like I never had experienced in lots of years of therapy, lots of years of talking about it, like that journey. And I did not go into that journey. This was this past summer with that intention at all. And so clearly that's what I needed. And I had a journey and experience with healing from body image and body shame and seeing my body so much differently. It was so profound for me. And that was one of the big reasons I'm like, oh, I need to get into this space somehow to help other women because I have seen so many women struggle with body image and shame and eating disorders and to have felt and to have received the healing like I did in one session was, I'm going to get emotional yeah. with it probably the most profound healing I've had in my life. And you share a story book about one of your guides that had a similar experience. So it's, this is not made up because there's, no. too, many, there's too many women. There's now science pointing to it, that it yeah. might be one of the most effective tools with he healing eating disorders, which is just mind blowing, but also my, my story and my journey confirms that. So speak a little bit into that of why my, maybe we're seeing that yeah. because eating disorders, disproportionately affect women. They do affect men, more women, I would say than men. And it's one of the most fatal of all psychiatric conditions. So it's not just this little frivolous thing. So tell me a little right. bit what's going on with psychedelics and helping with eating disorders. 
Yeah. So there are actually like 11 types of eating disorders. We we commonly talk about anorexia or bulimia, but there are actually 11 different kinds out there. So, um, so even if you don't fall into those specific categories, there's still potential that you have something, especially if you're experiencing some type of disordered eating. But disordered eating has many things, regardless of the, the, the eating disorder that one has, there are many elements that are often in common. And that is, um, you know, a distorted body image. There's the um, some element of compulsion and there's an element of addiction. And we know that um, that psilocybin research is, is looking into uh, psilocybin being used for addiction and also compulsions, things like that. Um, but researchers have been digging into psilocybin for anorexia or nervosa. That's just the first one they started with. So I'm sure we're going to get more research out there. But it is the clinical trial that was just recently done, I think part of it is still in the works, but they, they've they released some preliminary results in conferences and things like that. And it's it's really uh, sounds like it, it really will be beneficial in terms of reducing the the actions and the symptoms of an eating disorder. So um, that sounds really promising. And some of the the mechanisms, I mean, I would have to dig into the. I do I do list them in the book, but one of them is that um, so our body image has something to do with our angular gyrus, and something happens when you're on a psilocybin journey with that angular gyrus to release some of that negative negative body image. And so, um, you know, we're still learning all of these different facets of how that may work. But I, I can really see that as as a potential um, healing modality going forward once we have more research. But, you know, again, we're hearing anecdotal reports from people about this already as from you and then from one of the my trips that are her name. Um, I, I do have a whole chapter on her in the book of her healing from an eating disorder using psilocybin. She developed an eating disorder when she was a teenager. She was in ballet and, you know, ballet can certainly, depending on the people around you and how that all works out, um, she had a very negative trainer, da uh, dance instructor that was weighing her all the time. And that's how that cropped up. But she's completely healed from this eating, dis eating disorder and doesn't even think about it anymore, other than when she's talking about healing from it, you know, so, um, so that that's, I'm really excited about that research coming out, because I think that is going to be a game changer for people. Oh, for sure. And, you know, I look at so many aspects. I mean, with eating disorder, I mean, my I, anorexia is what I battled and it, there's actually something going on in your brain chemistry when you're doing this, not just like, oh, you need a positive look at your body, like more positive, like there's actually stuff going on with your brain with OCD and the lack of neurotransmitters. Right. Like, so many things that psilocybin helps with, like you spoke on earlier in our conversation with those negative loop feedback loops and all of that, mm -hmm. but then also what you experienced during the journey. Like I just saw my body in such that second journey for me, I spent most of it naked, did not plan that, but it's like, I saw my body in such a different light and just the saw myself outside my body, but then also inside my body and the connectedness, like you just can't even articulate it. Unless I you, know. Yeah. Unless been in it, But then also it still continues to give me a touch point for when I have some of the thoughts or negativity or whatever creep in of like taking me back to that experience. So incredibly powerful. And I'm just so encouraged by the research and what I, other women are seeing and experiencing, like it is unbelievable to me. So that's like, like one of the most exciting things for me about psilocybin and the research and what we're seeing. Um, thank you for bringing that up and just giving such just a lot of honor and credit and so beautifully telling your guide's story with that. The last thing I was going to talk about, but I know we kind of need to wrap up, but maybe we can end quickly on this note. Sure. It's the parenting and psilocybin. And you get your book does such a great job of giving resources. Mom, Moms on Mushrooms is a great resource. Um, so good. I think I need to have her on my podcast. I don't think I just can be the last time I talk about this because she really gets into like, especially microdosing, which again has been life changing for me. So, can you talk like five more minutes? Yeah. Or you, okay. Totally. So, because I think we can bring in again some of that indigenous wisdom here, like as far as incorporating this into, into motherhood, like when you're pregnant mm -hmm. or breast or chest feeding, of course. American science, you know, Western medicine, not doing any studies, don't do anything while you're breastfeeding, don't do anything while you're pregnant. But that's not exactly the black and white case that you 
came across with this. So talk into that just a little right. bit. Right. Um, yeah, that that was like some really fascinating research for me to dig into was trying to figure out like what could someone use it while pregnant? Could they use it while breastfeeding? And so I do incorporate a lot of information in there. And I did talk to an anthropologist. Her name is Hillary Agro. She's fantastic. She's a huge activist in, in the um, harm reduction space. And um, she talked about how uh, there is no, well, while we don't have evidence of absolute safety, of course, um, in with clinical trials, because we just don't study, we don't do clinical trials on pregnant people. Um, we we also don't have evidence of harm. So um, in terms of indigenous communities do use psilocybin while pregnant. And so um, there's no evidence of harm on those communities or those cultures. And so, um, you know, that doesn't mean that we have to be um, blase about it and just everyone's doing psilocybin while pregnant. It has to be something that you really consider for each individual person. And when I talked to the indigenous wisdom expert, Ma Mama De La Maico, she talked about her own experience in that she was battling alcoholism while pregnant. And so um, she turned to psilocybin and it changed her relationship with alcohol. And that was a form of harm reduction for her, you know, and her unborn baby. So, um, so we have to be thinking about the pregnant person as well as thinking about the fetus. I think a lot of times the, you know, Western society is just like, what's happening to the fetus? And it's like, well, also we need to be thinking about what's happening to the pregnant person because their health is really important. And then in terms of breastfeeding, I do incorporate information from, um, I, I pulled out the hat, I figured out the half-life for psilocybin um, from research. And then when would it be out of your system based on when you use it and based on your dosage? So obviously a deeper dose is going to take a while to get out of your system. Whereas um, a microdose, you could, you know, really time that with breastfeeding if you didn't want any in your breast milk. However, again, no, uh, no real evidence of harm that we know of. We just, but we don't have evidence of safety either. So I just wanted to put that out there. Um, but again, it has to be an individual decision for each uh, person and their family and all of that. And um, you can work with a lactation consultant and lactation consultants are not there to judge you for your substance use. They're there to help you figure out strategies. So that's really important. I do list um, a really great lactation consultant in the book. Um, I think her name is Andrea Sims Brown, if I'm getting that right off the top of my head. Um, but then in terms of parenting, I do see a lot of benefits here in terms of um, using psilocybin. I'm not a parent myself, but um, I did research this at length. And so one aspect that um, parents might be using psilocybin for is they might like go off and do their solo journey or whatever, and then come back and they find they enjoy playing with their kids more. Because let's be honest, getting down on the floor and playing Legos might not all be all that exciting to an adult, especially an adult who's really busy with a lot of tasks and deadlines and has other things on their mind. So it may help you be more present with your kids. The other thing I want to bring up is this idea of adverse childhood experiences. So um, one in uh, six adults has, uh, has had four or more adverse childhood experiences. So adverse childhood experiences are things like um, uh, if you lived in a violent home or there was, you know, was other abuse or neglect, or um, maybe you lived through tornado NATO or you have systemic racism in your community and, um, you know, all of these different things that cause trauma in childhood that has a lasting effect on us because it alters our stress response. So even in adulthood, long after the trauma is gone, we're still dealing with it in our bodies and that can cause metabolic health issues. It can lead to uh, more, more cases of type two diabetes, all of that. But obviously it has a profound effect on our children, even though, even if we don't have children yet or whatever, it can still affect them because we do pass down drama changes our genes, it changes our DNA. And then that is passed down through our line. So I see a lot of benefit in terms of helping people stop cycles of trauma. So here's the st statistic is that if you've had four or more ACEs, um, you, your children are three more than three times more likely to have four or more ACEs themselves. And so that can happen in multiple ways, not only passing down through genes, but also when we're dealing with trauma, um, it can sometimes times impact how we parent, you know, our ability to parent. And so that can also exacerbate traumas within the family. So I see a lot of potential for healing um, our former traumas that have occurred, healing that what we're still carrying with us, and then helping to end that cycle of passing it down. Because what is protective against children ending up having four or more ACEs, if you've had four or more ACEs, is um, having just a really healthy uh, family environment. And so if we can heal our traumas, we may be able to more 
create that healthy family environment. So I do see a lot of benefits with um, uh, with psilocybin. And Tracy T. Moms on, uh, from Moms on Mushrooms, she's the founder. She mentioned in an interview to me that um, that a lot of parents are using um, use psilocybin to be less reactive with their kids as well. And I think that's great too, because when you're stressed, you can be reactive. And if psilocybin can help ease some of the stressors that we have that people have as parents, then that seems like a, a magical thing as well. Absolutely. Thank you for speaking so yeah. well into that. And I mean, what it comes down to is when we're healthier, healed versions of ourselves, like we can parent our children in that, in that place of health and healing rather than trauma and stress. And I see it in my own life. I have a 21 and a 14 year old and 21 year old was raised in a lot with a lot of my <laughs> responses sure. not being healed. And I passed down a lot of trauma to her. And now this version of me that's better and healed, my 14 year old is not, is, is not getting it as much. So there's huge ramifications. And thank you for speaking of the somatics. I'm going through a certification as a somatic coach right now and how we do pass on that trauma in our bodies. When we are healing our bodies and our own trauma, we are healing those generations ahead. And I think psilocybin plays a huge role in that. And I then agree. with that, I'm just going to, a little caveat. And I heard you talk, I listened to a podcast interview, another one that you did, and you spoke about this part with the parenting. And I thought it was helpful for me to hear that was also talking to our kids in a new light about oh. drugs, because, you know, we were raised with the shame and stigma, like we said earlier, but like having some conversations with our kids about drugs and they're not all bad and like I'll be really honest with our own journey with them so I need I need to hear that because I still wrestle a little bit in that space of like talking to my 14 year old about about this but it's like that's yeah. how we break down the stigma and the shame like have these open honest conversations with our kids and they'll be more open and honest to talk to us when they start having these decisions to make in their own life so I appreciate it absolutely that. Thank you. Yeah, I think it's really important that we do have these open conversations to not only reduce stigma, but to also make yourself a person that's a safe person for your your child to come to to talk to about whether it's sex or whether it's drugs. I mean, just keeping sex off the table in terms of a conversation doesn't mean that teens won't have sex. They're more likely to get you know get an STD and get pregnant if they don't have accurate protect or adequate protection for the from these things. And so, if we openly talk about them, your teen is more likely to come to you for support and guidance before doing something. Right. That's right. Oh, Jen, I can keep talking to you, but we have to wrap up. I, I appreciate I so much. Like, we both try, we, I tried to fit so much in this conversation, but people just need, I mean, I can't encourage enough. If you are curious about this, or if you're like really into the research and think, you know, everything still get your book. Because <laughs> Thank you. This, you you just summarize it and source it and give resources just so well. Again, the book is called the psilocybin handbook for women. Jen, tell us where else we can find you. I know you're going on lots of book tours. You're on Instagram, you have a website, but where can people connect and find you and find your book? Absolutely. The book is available anywhere books are sold. I always suggest trying to get it from your local independent bookstore. If they don't have it in the shelves, they can order it for you. Um, however, uh, and, and then I'm available. Uh, you can find my website. It's jenniferchesick.com. Uh, the last name is C-H-E-S-A-K. And then you can also find me um, on Instagram. And that's where I'm probably the most active, but I'm on TikTok and all that stuff. And all my handle, all my social handles are at Jen Chesick. So J E. E-N-C-H-E-S-A-K. And I do list all of my book tour stops um, on the on Instagram. So you can find those there. Thank okay. you. And, and I think you're going to be in Colorado in early yeah. October when, when I'm going to be there. So I might try to stop in Boulder and see you. I, I was at that same bookstore last month that you're going to be at. I might, oh, I might stop amazing. in there and say hi. Yeah, that is Boulder Bookstore on October 3rd. I think the event is at 6.30 p.m. So I would love to see people there. Love to meet you there. Yeah, absolutely. I would love to as well. Yeah, so you you list that on your Instagram, but we'll also make a, put a note in the show notes of all the things that we mentioned. And again, people just need to buy your book, Jen. Thank you so much just for, for this time and sharing your story and all this, just this healing information. I so appreciate you and your voice. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate you having me on and I appreciate the work that you're doing. And you're my new publicist, I decided. Oh, okay, yay. <laughs> I love that, yes. Thank you for listening in on this conversation. As a reminder, psilocybin is still considered an illegal drug in many states. Thanks for listening in on this conversation. 
As a reminder, psilocybin is still considered an illegal substance in many states. This is changing, however, in states like Oregon, California, and Colorado. It's encouraging to know that a lot of research is currently being done right now in hopes that eventually all states, all people, will have access to plant medicine for everyone who chooses to partake. With that said, there are many ways to safely incorporate psilocybin in your healing journey now. But please do your work and proceed with caution, as sadly, like Jen and I discussed, there is an abuse and harm already being done in these spaces that should be safe and healing. If you're interested and want more information about how to incorporate psilocybin or plant meds in your own journey, please feel free to reach out to me, Andrea, at herstoryspeakspodcast at gmail.com. And as always, the links mentioned in our conversation and where to connect with my guests can be found at the show notes at herstoryspeaks.com.